Our scripture reading this morning is going to be from Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. Colossians 4, verses 2 through 6. And if you're using a Black Pew Bible in front of you, that's on page 985. Colossians 4, verses 2 through 6 says this, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Let's pray together. Dear God, as we come before you again this morning, uh, we are expecting to hear your word, and I pray that you would give John boldness and clarity and confidence in what your word says, and that you would give us um, an extra measure of grace to hear your word and apply it to our lives so that we can be changed ultimately for your glory, God. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in my mid-twenties, I was an unsaved man. I was raised Roman Catholic, so I knew who God was. And I knew who Jesus was, and I had a relationship with Jesus as far back as I could remember, but it was not a saving relationship. And, and at that time in my life, I worked in an office full of unsaved men, but one of my co-workers was, was a guy about my, my age, and his name was Tom. And Tom called himself a Christian, but even though I wasn't saved, something just didn't seem right. When guys would tell dirty jokes, Tom didn't laugh, and I understood that. And when the conversations turned to things that just weren't God-honoring, Tom would very quietly put on his headphones and just listen to music. But Tom didn't have health insurance, and he and his wife had a bunch of little kids. And I soon found out that Tom believed if you had enough faith, you'd never get sick. He didn't believe in the wealth that you hear so much now. He just believed if you, you yourself had enough faith you wouldn't get sick. And whenever Tom talked about God, he became the most unjoyful person I had ever been around. Everything was rules, rules, rules. And, and I soon began to notice things like he didn't celebrate Christmas, he didn't celebrate Easter, and everything was just evil and bad in, in his, we'll call it his walk. But Tom sat next to and got to be pretty good friends with a guy named Billy Anderson. And I think... He even tried to witness to Bill, but it just never seemed to go anywhere. Well, one day Bill came in to the office, and he had some devastating news. Everybody liked Bill, and he came in, and he said that his wife had been diagnosed with cancer, and she had months to live, if not weeks. They had two little twin daughters at home, and it was just a bad situation. And as the end of her life drew near, Bill would go into the hospital, and then he would show up at work, and he would come in with these red, swollen eyes, and I think he was looking for some kind of stability in his life. He was looking for something that wasn't going to move, 
You know, we were all good friends with him, and I think that's what he was looking for, some sense of normalcy. And I would see Tom over there talking to him, and I never really knew what they were saying. But one Friday morning, when we had been told that Linda had days, hours to live, Bill showed up early to work one day. It was, it was unusual. And again, I think he was just trying to find something normal, but he kind of got there before a lot of the guys, and he got there before Tom. And Tom came walking in a few minutes later. And in what was the cruelest thing I have ever heard in my life, he walked over to Bill's desk, and right in his face, he said, well, is she ready to die? In that tone. And the mark that that left on a bunch of unsaved guys was more than I could ever put into words. Tom was wrong. Eventually, God took him and his family out of that false teaching, and, they, and God placed him in a, in a Bible-believing church that teaches that salvation is by grace through faith. And Tom and I are good friends of this day. It's one of those deals where we never see each other, but we're good friends. The focus of our message today is verses 5 and 6 from the passage that Jordan read. Walk in wisdom. Walk in wisdom toward or to outsiders. Making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each question. This is the second week in a four-week series on stewardship that we're doing called Honoring God with His Gifts. Last week we were in First Chronicles, uh, mainly talking about giving, but really focusing on how anything we give to God comes to us from God. Today we're talking about honoring God with our time, the time that God has given us, making the best use of the time we have for God's glory. In our speech, what we say and how we say it factors into that as well. But before we do anything, before we look at these verses today, we need to take a long, hard look at godly wisdom. The verse says wisdom. He's referring to godly wisdom. What is godly wisdom? We need to at least get into that a little bit. So the verse says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Going back to Tom, there was no godly wisdom in what Tom said to Bill that day. There was no grace. There was certainly no compassion. And whatever salt there was, was salt in a wound, Right? While you and I would hope that we would never do something like that, say something like that, the fact is, no matter what we do or what we say, in the context of our faith and witnessing, we need godly wisdom. As ambassadors for Christ, we need godly wisdom. And if God has given us this gift of time, and he has to each one of us, we want to honor him by making the best use of it. So today we'll have three points we're going to look at. Your walk, your talk, and your witness. Those are the three things we want to focus on. But the first thing we talk about, like I said, is wisdom. Get wisdom. Proverbs, if you have not studied wisdom before, spend some time in the book of Proverbs and see what all God has to say about, about wisdom. Chapter 4 says this, Get wisdom, get insight or understanding. Do not forget and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her, wisdom, and she will keep you. Love her and she will guard you. 
The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom, and whatever you get, get insight. The NIV says that. Get wisdom, and no matter how much it costs you, get understanding. Prize her highly, and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. Hear, my son, and accept my words, that the years of your life may be many. I have taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in the paths of uprightness. When you walk, your step will not be hampered, and if you run, you will not stumble. Keep hold of instruction. Do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. So here's the, th the beautiful thing, really, about that passage. God says through Solomon, get wisdom. So I would say to you, get wisdom. And a number of you would say to me, if you could, how? How do I get wisdom? And the answer is this. It's very complicated. You ask for it. Okay? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Ask God for wisdom. He is eager to give it to you. But we need to know two very important things before we get there. These are the conditions, okay? Number one, and this will take us back to Proverbs, but this time to chapter 9. Before we ask God for wisdom, we need to understand this. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight or is understanding. So again, someone's saying to me, What does that mean? What is the fear of the Lord? First of all, if you're a Christian, it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean we're afraid of God. If you're a Christian today, God is your father, and you should never be afraid of your own dad, period. That is wrong, dads. But you should have a healthy respect for your father, especially your father in heaven. So as it relates to God, we should all have and never lose this realization that God, our Father, is also the creator of the universe. And the power that God has is beyond anything we could ever, ever possibly comprehend. But more than that, you, we, should remember one thing. God is holy. And that holiness is beyond what we can totally comprehend. But remember that God is holy. We are, we are sinful creatures who have been saved by grace... And the reverence that we should extend to God for the fact that a holy God would take on our sin and die in our place is reason enough to worship Him, to praise Him, and yes, to fear Him. If you're going to ask God for wisdom, Gray Road, if you're going to ask God for wisdom, you need to know His Word. Because you need to know God, and you'll know God through His Word. You need to study His Word. You, I, we need on our own to study God's Word. That is how He communicates to us. You need to meditate on His Word. You need to swim into the deep parts and go down and get into the deepest parts of God's Word. That is your life. That is our life as Christians. You need to own it. You need to own God's Word. It needs to be so much a part of your life that it is yours. You're not going like this. You're not trying to find verses. You're not afraid because you own God's Word. 
God commands us to do that. God wants to be known. He says that throughout his Bible. I want to be known by you deeply. If you want to ask God for wisdom, get into the word of God and know who you're getting the wisdom from. Know your God, know the word. The context here is that we need to walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. The verses that we're looking at today deal with witnessing to people who are lost, obviously. People who are facing an eternity in hell. And you and I carry with us the words of eternal life if you have them. If you have studied them and you know them, you can recite them, obviously. But you recite them with, as something that you know, something that is yours. Not words on a page. From your heart. We're talking about time. God says, make use of this gift of time that I have given to you and carry the gospel to those places and to those people that I have put in your path. That's why we have the gift of time. Too many times, folks, Christians will say, but I don't know what to say because they don't own the word. They don't know the word of God. You have to make it your own. How many times have you seen this passage from 1 Peter? In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone, anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. God commands us to be prepared, but for what? To make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. What is this that you have? What is this thing that you talk about? Who is this Jesus you keep talking about? And why are you different from everyone else? We are commanded to be able to make a defense for that, to explain that. Again, this is witnessing to outsiders. In other words, to a lost word. Outsiders is, in this context is referring to the lost world. And that lost world, though, though they may see the hope and they may not, they won't like you. Your message is that you are a sinner. If you came to Christ as an adult or as a teen, anything besides a small child, you were confronted with someone saying, you're bad. There's something about you that's not good. And our response immediately is, what's wrong with me? I'm a nice guy. I do good things because we didn't understand sin, right? That's the message you carry. They will attack you. The world won't like you. Jesus said if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. So we look at that little, those few words from 1 Peter, but let's look at the whole passage. It says, finally, all of you. This is, this is a picture of 1 Peter was written the time that Nero was persecuting the church. Persecuting as in killing, as in, as in putting pitch, tar over people and lighting them on fire. Your friends, your family, they're, they're disappearing. They're being killed all the day long. This is the context in which Peter says to these people, finally, so this is almost like he's got the troops together and he, he's trying to tell them, guys, listen. He says, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. 
Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. You, as you sit in your church with your church family, don't do these things, he says. But on the contrary, bless. For to you, this who were called, you, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit in the face of this world that hates you. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it in the face of this world that hates you. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and here his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Again, he's speaking kind of to the troops here. He says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason that the, uh, for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when, not if, when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. What a dichotomy that's going on here. What an interesting situation. You have the words of eternal life. They know you have a hope in you. They, don't, they might believe it. They might seek it. They might not. But they will persecute you. So, walk, as the Bible says, circumspectly. Walk in a way that honors God and talk in a way that honors God. With all that in mind, I do want to get into the two verses a little bit, but before we go there, I think it would be good to, um, I think, respect the text, explain the bigger context of what we're talking about. So this is obviously from the letter that Paul wrote to the Colossian church. He, this is one of what we call the prison letters. Paul was in prison when he wrote this letter. And so he, he's dealing with a situation where false teachers had come in and they're denying the sufficiency of Christ. If you remember from 2 Corinthians, false teachers had come into the Corinthian church and they were denying that Paul was a true apostle so that they could pave the way to saying Christ is not sufficient. You need to add all these things to the gospel, which is a false gospel, which is a gospel that won't save. In this situation, there were these, these people were called Gnostics. They were talking about knowledge. Well, we have the inside knowledge. You have to have this knowledge to be saved, and on and on and on. That was what was going on. Another interesting thing about the Colossian church, if you will, not right now, but if you have spent a lot of time studying the, the letter of Philemon, which I'm sure all of you have, know it forward and backwards, it's one page. It's a letter that Paul wrote to a man named Philemon. You really should study it, folks. It's in the Word of God, and it serves a purpose. Philemon was a wealthy man who lived in the city of Colossae. And the Colossian church, you figure this is a, a, a church that's, you know, we're talking about a city they're in, so it must be pretty big. Well, they met in Philemon's house. It's a church. It doesn't matter how big it is, it's a church. And so it's probably a big house because he was a wealthy man. But as you read the story... Of Philemon, he had he was a rich man, so he had slaves, and he had a slave run away on him. His name is Onesimus. And when Paul wrote to Colossae from prison, he wrote the letter of Philemon 
because he, in Rome, had met this young man and led him to Christ. And apparently the conversation went, well, where are you from, son? Well, I'm from Colossae. I have a good friend who lives in Colossae. Really? What's his name? His name's Philemon. What a coincidence. I had a master that I ran away from named Philemon. Oh. And Paul says, you need to go back. You need to go back to your master. And so when, when the letter was given to the church, they're going to read this letter that we have in our Bible, but Paul is also going to have them read this letter about, oh, by the way, Onesimus is outside the door there. And the whole church is watching. It's a very interesting thing. It's all about forgiveness. So that's all couched into the Colossian church. All right, That's part of what's going on there. Okay, back to the, the theology of Colossians. Colossians 2, verses 9 and 10 say that for in him, remember we're talking about Colossians was written about the sufficiency of Christ. And verses 9 and 10 in the second chapter say, For in him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and all authority. That's what Colossians is really about, the first part of it especially. Chapter 3 then, as you read through the book, you can scan it if you'd like. Chapter 3 talks about what it means to have that sufficiency in Christ. If Jesus is sufficient to redeem me from my sin, what does that mean? Okay, God saved me. What does that mean to me? Paul says it means that you seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. He says, set your mind on things that are above. You heard that this morning already. Not on things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. And so chapters 3 and then chapter 4 talk about the lifestyle of this new creation that we are in Christ. So that's the broader context of Colossians, just to let you know that. And so he's moved into this section where he's talking to us about how to deal with the outside world, the lost world. And part of that is what we're looking at today. So let's look at verse 5. Obviously says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. What does that mean? We've already talked about wisdom and about outsiders. What about this phrase, making the best use of, of time? I, I struggle to see, see how to explain that. Warren Wearsby said it like this, and this was very helpful. So I put it on the screen for you. Making the best use, quote unquote, of time, of our time, means buying up the opportunity. This is a commercial term and pictures the Christian as a faithful steward who knows an opportunity when he sees one. Just as a merchant seizes a bargain when he sees one, so a Christian seizes the opportunity to win a soul to Christ. That's, that's good in a number of ways because it's a little bit stabbing because you have to ask yourself, is that me? Do I look for opportunities? Do I seek out opportunities to witness? Do I, I find them and I go, good, I'm going to go after that? Or do you shy away? I was thinking as I was studying these verses that God leads us into a place where we accept Jesus as our Savior and we place faith in, in Him. And for a lot of us, that was a step, a big step. Okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to give my life to Christ. Then Christ says, okay, now I want you to witness to others. We have to do the same thing. We have to accept that God's command is for us to witness to others. 
to spread the gospel like someone did to you. So, at this point I wanted to step back a little bit again and look at all the verses that Jordan read, just two through six. And, and the context of this is, what are the responsibilities of believers in the world? And, and again, I want to look at these verses in their entirety, starting at verse two. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful within it with thanksgiving. And, and watchful there means what Warren Wiersbe just talked about. Watchful, looking for an opportunity. He says, at the same time, Paul says, pray for also for us, that God may open a door to us for the world, for the work, excuse me, to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. I wanted to step back because when you look at these verses, and I've explained that Paul was in prison, you notice in his prayer he doesn't pray to them, get me out of here. He does not pray for, for release. And I'm telling you, I want you to see what a testimony that is for all of us. I'm not looking to get out of here. I'm looking to see God glorified through myself. Why were we created? Why did God create us? What is the Great Commission? Why did God give you and I the gift of time? It's a gift. Years ago, there was a man in this church that I love dearly. His name was Lynn LaHaye. And he said something one Sunday morning that I wrote down on the cover of my Bible. Location is not the issue. Faithfulness is. Location is not the issue. Faithfulness is. No matter where you are, where God has placed you, faithfulness to God. You know, the, the parable of the lazy servant who buried his talent. You know, I, I don't want to go out there and do that. You know, we can't, it can't be us. What a joy it would be to have Jesus say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little. I will see, set you over much. When I pass away, I want to hear God say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Amen? God has given us, each of us, years, not days or hours. I did some math. 365 days in a year. 24 hours a day in each of those days and 60 minutes in each of those hours. I, I'll be nice. I subtracted 10 hours a day for sleep and for stuff in your face. And you end up then with 306,600 minutes in a year. And even if you only spent 10 minutes explaining the gospel, you would end up with 30,660 opportunities to share the gospel. How was your last year? I would say if you're in the high 29s, you can take a break. That seems fair. If you're into the 30,000 range, we'll give you a gold star. Really? That's a lot of time to share the gospel. Every day, how much idle time is that you, do you waste? 
when you could have been sharing God's word with a lost person, then God has called on us to do that. Please keep that in mind. Okay, moving forward, talking about our walk. The Christian's walk should be marked by four things. Consistency, be consistent. Your walk should be conducted with wisdom. Your walk should be conducted with a heart for the lost. And your walk should be conducted with a sense of urgency. Please get that. Your walk with Christ should be conducted with a sense of urgency for the lost. One commentator said this, all have the same amount of time. The clock is no respecter of persons. The child of God, however, must buy out opportunities to reach the lost with an effective witness. What does that look like? 1 Thessalonians says this, chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent upon no one. Your walk matters. Your example matters. And that's exactly what he's saying. I'm going to leave it at that for today. Move to verse 6. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. We talked about the Christian's walk and what it should look like. What about your speech? Again, the Christian's speech should be consistent. And what I mean there is no matter what circumstances you're in, your speech should be consistent and it should be seasoned with salt and you have to be what God said in 1 Peter, gracious when you are being attacked. When they laugh in your face. I've had people laugh in my face. The guy I worked with, Dave, you want to come to our Bible study? And he, had a, he busted a gut. Really? I mean, mocking. He didn't hurt me, folks. We're not being persecuted. But that will happen. S consistent speech all the time. Speech that is full of grace. Again, even in the face of open hostility. Speech that is seasoned with salt. What does that mean? That means the Word of God. Sharing the Word of God. And this is the, la the last point is very important because, again, this goes back to owning the Word of God. This goes back to the fact that you have to be saturated with God's Word. If you think, well, I've, I've memorized the gospel and I've mem memorized my approach or whatever, and I'll use this every time. Every time is not every person. Who are you talking to? What are their needs? What are their difficulties? What is their experience of life? That matters. You're talking to a human being. Not, you're, you're not checking a box, folks. So we need to do this. Again, displaying a sensitivity and an awareness to the needs of each individual that you talk with. Is this easy? No. Does it take work? Yes. Will you stumble at times? Probably. Is God gracious? Is God faithful? Absolutely.
We are commanded to share the word of God. Dealing with our speech, though, is the most difficult thing you will face. Uh, if you would please turn to the, the letter of James, the book of James, near the back of your Bible. Those of you who are familiar with the word, we're going to go to James chapter 3, and you know where we're going. We're going to start at verse 2 in chapter 3 of the book of James. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they're guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who were made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? No. Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. He asked some very good questions. Here's one. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. When we talk about wisdom is, that's wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, then peaceable, then gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Our text today obviously deals with dealing, talking to outsiders, unsaved people. Let me ask you to do a little business for a second here and look at that passage and you say, what in that passage defines me? If you had to highlight right now, if someone handed you a piece of paper and said, highlight the parts of this passage that where you live right now, where would it be? Would you be 
highlighting jealousy? Would you be highlighting bitterness, selfish ambition? That's not a good place for the Christian to be. So the words from James are not only for us as Christians in this lost world, but for Christians within our congregation, within our families, everything. Walking, as I said, circumspectly. How many people outside of Christianity use that word, right? But you know what I mean. How many people, Christians, who, who are witnessing or not witnessing, need to do business at home, need to do business in their own hearts? That's part of it, too. That matters so much to all this because if we're not walking with God, God's not going to give us those opportunities. And he wants to do that. It is the Great Commission. I will say this again, and this is, this is what I wanted to leave you with today. I know we're short, but we just had a couple of verses, and obviously this was short notice, but I mentioned the sense of urgency, and I wonder in my heart if we understand that, if we really understand. My life, a lot of yours, have been marked the last few years by, by death, losing people that, that we loved, and some of those people were saved, and some of them were not. No one, no one knows what's going to happen when you walk out the doors here. None of us knows when God is going to take a life. None of us know that. Today is the day. Today is the day you talk to that person. When my mother-in-law passed away, I immediately started thinking of my own parents and my own family who were... Roman Catholic and don't know God. And it is difficult. I acknowledge that. But folks, that doesn't matter. And it doesn't matter in your lives either. Do you have someone you love who's not saved? Can you share the gospel with them? You should. How much of it is your pride? How much of people say fear, and I understand fear, but how much of fear is pride? I don't want to get shot down. I don't want someone to take a shot at me or anything. That's pride. That is pride hiding itself as fear. We, we sat here earlier and sang, and, and I wrote this down while we were singing. So with every breath that I am given, I will sing salvation song. Many years ago, I heard Chuck Swindoll, if you know who he is, he's a, a pastor, he's on the radio, and he said that he was on the platform with like his head guys, I don't know how they did in his church, but, and they were singing a, a hymn called I Surrender All. And they were singing I Surrender All. And he mentioned everything that you're surrendering. surrendering. And he said, I turned to the guy next to me, I said, do you mean that? And over the music, he looked at him like, what are you talking about? And he said, do you mean that? And he said, my deacon looked at the words and, 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 looked, and looked at me like horrified, like, oh my goodness. I haven't sacrificed. I haven't surrendered all these things. They're mine, right? We say these things. We see these things, sing these things, and we want to believe that we're all for Jesus. But when you sang that this morning, with every breath that I am given, I will sing salvation song. Sing that song to the lost world. Take this message, this gospel that saves, to this lost world. I, I say that from the, the position of someone who needs to do that myself. Our next door neighbor is a single mom. We're buddies with her. 
She's come to this church once, but she doesn't know the Lord. I need to talk to her. We have a neighbor across the street who's a young guy. He's 38 years old. Yes, that's young, folks. And he's got some physical problems, and, and we help him, but I need to talk to him. I, I speak as one of you that we need to share the gospel, you and I. That is our mandate from God. Please take that seriously, not from John Tierney, but from your Lord. Please, God, convict us all to do your will. I will close with this passage from Romans chapter 13. This carries the urgency I talked about. You see it there. Besides this, knowing the time, it is already the hour for you to wake up from sleep, Christian. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is nearly over and the daylight is near. So let us discard the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk with decency as in the daylight, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual impurity and promiscuity, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no plans to satisfy the fleshly desires. The hour is short. None of us knows. None of us knows. It is a terrifying thought that the person that you love so much and you have not shared the gospel with may lose their life today and you don't know. Did you see the article in the paper or the internet, wherever you, the news, last night, the night before, there's a guy in Bargersville, Indiana, who's on his way to work and a girl, a drunk driver, hit him head on and he's dead. He's gone. He was on his way to work minding his own business and he is gone. And that happens all the time in our world, all the time. Who is it in your life that needs to hear the gospel? And how long will you wait? How long will you get to the door and stop and come back and say, I'm afraid? Folks, God is your Lord. He will be with you. He will help you. Learn his word. Pour yourself into the word. If you don't come to Sunday school, come to Sunday school and learn. Go home and learn. Get on the internet. Study. Learn God's word so you own it, so you can share it. God commands us that to do that. He wants us to do that. And the world needs it. We have been given this treasure in jars of clay. Why? We're so futile, so frail, so sinful, and yet God says, I'm, I'm entrusting this to you. Take it and share it with the world. Do that today. Do that tomorrow. The world needs us. The world needs you and I to share the word of God with them. I'm going to pray right now. I would ask that you would pray along with me. While I'm praying to God for this congregation, please pray in your own heart for that person. Please pray for that person right now. Father, you have given us the time. You have given us your word and you have done it in a place where we feel no danger. We're unhindered. We have more means to communicate with the people around us than any place in the world or in the history of the world. And we have access to your word in so many ways to learn it, to study it, to know it, to drink it in. God, help us to do those things for your glory. God, you saved us. You, the holy God of the universe, saved us from our sins by sacrificing, slaughtering your own son on a cross and bringing us to eternal life. 
and you say, now take this message out to the world, and we say, no, God help us all. Help us all to share your word. Help us all, God, to trust in you no matter what and to know that you love us, that you care for us, and that you will carry us. You are our Father. You are our God. We are amazed that we can call you Abba Father, Dad, Daddy. But that's what we have in you. Again, Father, I pray for everyone in this room, anyone watching on the Internet, that you would empower us. Give us the boldness we need to share your word with this lost, dark world that is perishing forever. Help us all. Have mercy on us, God. And we bring this to you in Jesus' name. Amen.